Good evening and welcome to you all. I'm Barbara Kane. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and it is my very great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight. Um, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, on whose ancestral lands the University of Sydney was built, and to acknowledge also our, our recognition that this was a place of learning and culture for many, many centuries before the University of Sydney was built on it. It's now my very great pleasure to welcome and introduce um, Professor Nick Enfield to give this first Insights Lecture for 2016. Nick joined us last year as a Professor of Linguistics and Chair of the Department. He's kind of doing the rounds, I think, of Australia's top universities with a BA at ANU and a PhD at Melbourne and now, yeah, the pinnacle at Chair of the University of Sydney. <laughs> and, um, and we're very, very, very pleased to, to have him. Nick's done what wonderful things in the year he's been here, both in the Department and also more broadly setting up a research network on power and accountability. But he came to us, of course, as a very distinguished scholar. Um, he has several areas of interest. One primary area of interest has long been the different languages of the mainland Southeast Asia region and, and how they've influenced each other um, over centuries of interaction. And he works from China to Vietnam to Cambodia to Laos. As an undergraduate, Nick spent a year as a foreign student at the National Teachers Training College in Vientiane, which is now the National University of Laos in the early 1990s. And he's carried out regular field work there for the last 25 years. He's published exclusively in the field and currently is still um, engaging in research on the language and culture of the Cree, an upland minority group with a population of around 300. That's correct. Okay, um, living just inside the Vietnamese border in central Laos. So, but Nick's work also spans the disciplines of linguistics, sociology, anthropology, and cognitive science. And before he came to Sydney, in the years just before that, he worked in the language and cognition group at the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in the Netherlands. There he ran a very large EU-funded project on human sociality and systems of language use. Nick's published many books and many articles, and many of them have been very, very, very well and widely, well, widely and very well received. His most recent book, The Utility of Meaning, What Words Mean and Why, which was published last year, I think, had a fantastic review in the Australian Book Review, which I even <coughs> about because it was so immensely enthusiastic, seeing it as a groundbreaking book and one that represents a new and different approach that connects a wide range of discipline areas and offers an account of linguistic meaning that's like no other. Nick is also the winner of an Ig Nobel Prize in 2015. This is a prize awarded annually by Harvard University for research that first makes you laugh and then makes you think. And he won it for a paper showing that the word ha, as in, say that again, um, appears to be universal in human language. And it seems to be very fitting to move from that to the conversation machine. Okay, well, thank you very much for that <clears throat> very generous introduction, and I'm delighted to see all of you here. Um, some well-known faces, not everyone well-known, but very pleased to see you. Um, today, I'm going to be talking about the conversation machine, um, as Barbara was just saying. Um, first, though, I'll just make a note uh, regarding, you know, my relation to Sydney. As you said, um, eventually I 
came here um, as an academic, having not been here ever before as a student. Um, but my dad was a student here in the 50s, and um, his sister, my auntie, uh, was a student here in the late 40s. Um, and uh, so she has recently regaled me with um, various stories about her time uh, in immediate post-war um, Sydney Uni. Uh, and so she's a little poorly right now and not here, but I'd like to dedicate this lecture uh, to her, Rosemary Boyden, um, and um, hopefully she'll be able to listen to the lecture uh, on the podcast later on. So the topic um, of uh, what I want to talk about today, of course, is language. Uh, I'm in the Department of Linguistics, and what we do is we look at language. And language is what really brands us as being a quite unique and special um, species. It's also what we use to construct and to carry out pretty much everything that we do here at the university, but also pretty much everything that we do in life. Um, so the people that you see here... Uh, are using language to carry out their family life and to keep their families together and to keep uh, their lives going. Um, these people are using language to carry out conflict or to carry out some kinds of um, uh, social situations that are uh, not cooperative necessarily but competitive. Uh, language is what we use to organise everything that we do um, and it's a really you know, great puzzle as to what language is and why only our species has it. So one thing that I want to start with is the observation, just to simply acknowledge the fact that language is a product of evolution. Language is a kind of animal behaviour, and we are the animal that produces this behaviour. Um, this is just a, uh, a little diagram of the many, 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 many life forms that evolution has produced on our planet. Um, and as you can see, you know, we're going all the way from bacteria around to uh, humans at the other end. Uh, the point here is that there's a lot of nodes on these various trees of evolution. And language, the thing that we're interested in right now, has evolved exactly once, uh, or at least in exactly one species. There's some controversy as to whether Neanderthals had language, um, but, you know, uh, two species um, rather than one wouldn't be much of a jump. It's a really uh, kind of um, amazing innovation that a species has come up with and the question is what's at the centre of it? What's language really all about? Well, because it's a product of evolution and because it's a kind of animal behaviour, the way to approach it would be the way that Charles Darwin would have approached it and that would be to go out and see what it's like in the wild, observe language as it occurs... Uh, and try to understand it from the point of view of the empirical basis, just the simple descriptive basis of what this kind of behaviour really is. And once we build up uh, a lot of descriptions of what language is, then we get to ask theoretical questions about what's behind it. My favourite um, book by Darwin is this one that's perhaps less known. Uh, <laughs> it's the formation of vegetable mould through the action of worms with observations on their habits. Um, and it's a readable and stunning book um, about earthworms in England. Uh, and it, it really is fabulous. He um, goes through an incredibly rich range of observations of his own on earthworms um, and their behaviours and the results of their behaviours. They turn over the soil. Um, and he ends the book by sort of saying that he thinks they're probably one of the most important life forms in all of England. Um, but the point being that, you know, to do a book like that and certainly to come up with the theory of evolution, 
uh, uh, Darwin, like his uh, contemporaries, was relying on enormous history of observation of things, um, uh, uh, life forms in this case, in the wild. Uh, so the way I want to approach language to try to understand what it is is to look at it uh, in the wild, look at what kind of a behaviour this is. So what better place to look than um, telephone calls? Uh, the telephone was, of course, invented um, as a device for using language. Um, so we're just going to listen to a little excerpt from a phone call. This is Bud talking to John. Uh, and they're trying to arrange a game of golf. They need four guys. They've already got three, and they're figuring out, well, which is... which. Who can we get to fill you know, the group? Uh, so John's made a few suggestions and Bud is um, just saying, okay, well, he's going to go and try to call those guys and fix up a fourth person. Um, and uh, so this is towards the end of the call. We're just going to hear um, this little uh, sequence here. Here it goes. I'll call you back in a little bit. All right. And Bippert's there too. Yeah? Bippert is there too. Who is he? You know Al Bippert? Yeah. He lives there too. He's got a place down there too. Well, maybe we can get one or the other. Okay, this is, this is pretty mundane, right? It seems like just a really everyday little bit of language. Um, but like any other really everyday little bit of language, um, you don't have to dig very deep to see um, a lot of pretty interesting uh, features. And we're not going to get into many of the details, but I just want to reel off quickly a few of the sort of fundamental um, aspects of this little stretch of behaviour that I'm representing here with, in writing um, in terms of you know, the kinds of things that people have... Uh, noticed is unique about human language as opposed to other forms of animal communication. So, for example, this has what's called duality of patterning. Uh, this is a technical term which refers to sort of two levels of patterning that language can have. So, on the one hand, the sounds that you heard in that little clip are structured in a very particular way according to the rules of English sound structure, you know, the rules about how you can make up words, what's a possible word in English and so forth. So there's a whole level of structure in the sound, just the sounds that you hear and what the principles are behind them. Then there's another sort of level of structure or patterning which is how the, the, the meaningful elements of these sentences get joined together to make up words, to make up sentences. And those two levels of structure are joined to each other and that's what's referred to as uh, duality of patterning. So a lot of animal communication is sophisticated in various ways, but it doesn't have this disconnect between, uh, or this sort of separateness and yet joinedness between the sound part of the, the structure and the meaning part of the structure. That's duality of patterning. And in duality of patterning, there is this principle called arbitrariness. And what that means is that the sounds you hear there's only an arbitrary relation between those sounds and the meanings uh, that are um, expressed. Um, what this basically means is that if you uh, take, for example, this first line here, I'll call you back in a little bit, uh, you can describe that as just a bunch of sounds, okay? You can record it and you can demonstrate various wavelengths and so forth um, quite in quite specific ways, but the fact that that conveys the meaning that it conveys is just an accidental fact about English. This, this language happened to evolve those kind of what we call sound meaning mappings over time. So it's perfectly possible in another language. Many of you speak other languages and you can imagine how you would say that in another language the way it sounds is not important. The only thing that's important is that everybody in the community agrees that sound stands for that meaning. So this is referred to as arbitrariness and that is supported by what's called cultural transmission, another special feature of human language. So these two guys, Bud and John, don't just happen to know English. They had to devote a whole 
that had to devote their, their, their infancy, their childhood, their youth to living in a particular community where they learnt this system. It's a very rich and structured system and it's been transmitted to them culturally in a way that if they had been born on the other side of the world, they would not have acquired language um, like that. So there are little things a tiny bit like that in the animal world, but not very much. Basically, you don't have a lot of uh, variation within the species. Another important feature um, of what we see here is the presence of something called illocutionary force. This is a term that philosophers use to refer to the fact that language can be used to make actions. Okay, so for example, uh, Bud says, I'll call you back in a little bit, he's not just saying something, he's also making a commitment. He's also making a kind of little promise okay, to, uh, to John, and then John says, all right, he's not just saying something, he's accepting that commitment, he's taking it up. So there's uh, something um, in terms of the sort of actions that these, uh, that these bits of language um, form. Another feature is what we call reflexivity. The language has this special capacity to refer to itself. Okay, so a lot of communication systems will tell you something about the state of the uh, one who is sending the message. They're excited, they're hungry, they're angry, they're going to attack, what have you. Um, but one of the things that language can do and does all the time is that it's used to refer to itself. So when Bud says, huh, what he's doing is, is a kind of shorthand for what was it that you said just now? And that's turning the system back on itself in this interesting uh, kind of way. And finally, um, there is something that we call displacement. And that means that uh, what these guys are effortlessly doing is not only talking about things in the here and now, but they're also able to communicate about things displaced from the here and now. So they can talk about people who are not present, they can talk about times that are not now, um, etc. And these are effortless um, for linguistic systems, but they're very difficult for other kinds of systems to handle. So, for example, you've got vervet monkeys have been well described in the literature uh, for their incredible um, system of uh, alarm calls. So they have a special alarm for when uh, a sky predator comes, that's usually an eagle, and another alarm when a ground predator comes, that's usually a snake, and a third um, alarm that they will sound when you know, some kind of a large beast comes along, like a, a, a tiger or something like that. Um, so this is a sophisticated little system, but it's all about the here and now. It doesn't say, you know, you can't use it to say, I saw a tiger just before, or there was one yesterday, or there might be snakes tomorrow. Um, songbirds are well described um, in that they form, they're very good at imitating sounds. They even have some sort of dialect variation. They can learn songs from others. But the, 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 the complexity and the capacity to build on those things is very, very limited compared to human language. Human language just takes off. Okay? These are massive productive systems and they're incredibly complex. Uh, and um, for all their wonders, uh, the birds don't um, come near it. And sort of the real feature, which is implicit in everything I've been saying so far with human language, is the incredible diversity of systems around the world. So wherever you go... Uh, people will be using language to coordinate their activities, to carry out their everyday lives, and those languages will be structured in incredibly different ways. So you all know this from experience of learning second languages, but in the science of linguistics, when we look at any of the sort of 7,000 or so existing languages, we get into some really interesting diversity. Uh, so I don't have um, time today to talk about that diversity, but I will just um, point to one small example which I, with which I'm trying to do two things. 
Um, one thing is that, one point I want to make here is that when you're just stringing together simple little sentences like John and Bud just now, you're doing some really deft stuff uh, psychologically. Okay, so here's a little um, phrase from the phone call you just heard. He lives there too. And this little S here, as you uh, will remember from you know, your grammar classes, um, you have to put that there because the subject of the verb is third person singular and it's a present tense, simple present tense um, sentence. So you've got to stick the S in there. Yeah, that's not just a rule of grammar. That's a thing that we do psychologically. We pull up that S, we pronounce it in the right place. If it wasn't he, if it was I, we, you, etc., um, you'd leave that out. There'd be a little gap there. So that's a very small thing about English grammar, but it's something that we have to control. And this is what we refer to as agreement, uh, and there are, there's much diversity in what these systems uh, look like. I'll just give you a tiny example from um, our own country. Uh, this is um, from a language called Dalabon, spoken in the Northern Territory. There's a similar system there, uh, but instead of just having to track, are you talking about singular uh, or um, plural uh, subject of the sentence, you have to know uh, a third category, are you talking about two people? So you might want to produce a sentence that says, the two of us are going somewhere. So you have a little paradigm here where you have to pick between you know, all of these. I won't get into the complexities, but I, I want to just add uh, the sort of key, interesting piece of information here. Not only do you have to identify that the subject is two people rather than one or plural, you also have to monitor the kinship relation between those two people. Okay? So you have to know, um, are these people in a harmonic um, kin relation, which is that they're in the same... Uh, generation, let's say, for example, or a disharmonic, which is that they're in adjacent generations. And if it's a grandchild and grandfather, then that would be back to harmonic, etc. So um, that's just a simple principle of kinship in this particular and many other Australian Aboriginal communities. Um, but when you just string uh, sentences together, you've got to monitor that information. So what it's showing us is that you know there's some really simple little uh, utterances like this are requiring a great deal of knowledge um, and uh, you know, processing psychologically but also a kind of cultural uh, background. And also demonstrating here that the variation in cultures is very, very great. All right. So these are kind of demanding details of language. These are, are things that are, that are hard to describe. They vary a lot and they're hard to handle when you're just producing sentences. And they point to the complexities of language uh, that, we, that we really want to sort of raise up as being the riddles that linguists ought to be able to solve. What is it that all languages have um, in common? And this is sort of the question I want to raise. Is there some magic aspect of our species? Is there something that we're born with uh, that allows us to learn languages, learn these difficult and complex systems? This is a very old question in linguistics, uh, and it's one um, that's been answered in, in various different ways, and I'm going to, um, uh, I'm going to talk about those things um, now. So one... Um, the attempts to try to pinpoint what is at the essence of language is to list the kind of things I listed just before, things like displacement, uh, duality of patterning, these kinds of things. And these are very interesting observations, but they don't point necessarily to something that's inborn in human beings. They point, they're sort of descriptive. They tell us properties of language that we need to um, explain. Uh, many of you will be familiar with uh, Noam Chomsky, the famous linguist, uh, and he, of course, um, put forward... Uh, I can see my cousin smiling over there because uh, their family dog was called Chomsky. Uh, um, for, good, for good reasons that you can ask me about later. So, uh, 
Chomsky proposed um, that there is uh, something that so sort of genetic mutation in human beings that resulted in uh, something uh, uh, appearing in our minds that he has referred to since as universal grammar. And the idea is that there's a kind of module in the brain, a module in the mind uh, that, account, that is, is the sort of common basis to all grammars. All of this diversity in human, 7,000 or more human languages, uh, rests on this kind of inborn little, um, let's say, uh, a device for putting information together in particular ways that allow you to learn uh, natural languages. Um, that in, back in the times when it was sort of being developed, that idea, particularly in the sort of 70s and 80s, it was treated as a very rich proposal that there were many, many parameters and principles in the human mind. But over the years, that list has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And today, there's really one uh, very basic little uh, uh, object in that idea called universal grammar that Chomsky now proposes, and it's a thing called rec recursion. It's a principle of recursion. And what he says is that principle uh, is, a, is a sort of an information processing principle. It's a way of packaging information in the mind. Its only real advantage to human beings is that it helps you think better. And it wasn't evolved for communication at all. So communication was a kind of fun, obviously very useful byproduct, but that's not where uh, you know, language came from. So that's been uh, controversial, and, um, and there's a, quite a large movement of people who are saying, well, it's actually not like that. And so what I'm going to be doing now is talking to you about that sort of side uh, uh, of the coin and sort of arguing for an alternative possibility. So one alternative, um, I want to turn to the work of someone um, called Jim Herford, who is a, um, a linguist uh, in the UK. And he um, has recently published uh, a lot of work saying, well, actually, what's, uh, what's behind language is something very simple, not as magical as universal grammar. It's something called what I call, it's not his term, but I don't want to be technical, so I'm just going to call it co topic comment structure. So just take a couple of simple sentences like the dog is black, that woman was running. The basic idea here is you've got a sort of a topic, the dog or that woman, something that you're focusing your attention on, something you're talking about, and then you make some comment on that. You characterize it in some way. You describe it or you assert some property of it. So the dog, as for the dog, it's black. As for that woman, she was running. So this is a sort of a basic uh, idea about how simple sentences are structured in any language, it's possible to render these types of simple sentences. And what Herford says is, uh, he acknowledges there's much more to human language than those simple types of little uh, structures, but he argues that that structure is the semantic foundation on which all the rest is built. So he makes a strong claim that no matter how complex your language is, it's ultimately grounded in that simple relation, that simple idea that you're focusing your attention on something that you want to talk about, and then you're saying something about it. And everything else in language is basically in the service of doing that. Okay? And he says, I'm not just making this up. Uh, what he's trying to do is to argue that there's a neural basis for it. There's something in the brain that actually makes this, uh, you know, that shows where this uh, structure kind of rests. And that is um, in two aspects of the, um, the visual system. Um, two uh, streams within the visual system, the dorsal visual stream, and this is described as being uh, the where system. Uh, and what this basically uh, does is it locates things that, so that we can lock onto them. And then you've got the ventral visual stream down here, which deals with 
uh, characterizing those things. What is it? What color is it? Does it move? You know, can I mate with it, etc.? Uh, those kinds of things. So um, his point is he says there's a neural substrate, uh, uh, as we call it, to this type of topic comment structure. But his point is that lots and lots and lots of species have this too. Okay, so his kind of um, uh, conclusion is he says uh, all the animals can talk, they just don't make it public. <laughs> or maybe he says something like all animals have language, they just don't talk. Um, so he sort of says it in a flippant way, but he's quite serious um, uh, about it because he's trying to say there isn't a magic grammatical structure in the brain. It's something else going on. And the puzzle is, if you put it the way that he put it, the puzzle is what is it that makes us bring this topic comment structure, this focus and then characterise, what, what, what is it that makes us uh, bring this out into the open and share it with each other? That's the real question. Uh, and the answer is provided partly by him drawing on work by uh, developmental psychologists now, and that's something that we call joint attention or uh, shared intentionality. And what those terms refer to is simply the kind of thing that you see here where one person points something out and the other directs their attention to that same thing, and boom, you're not just looking at something, you're not just both looking at the same thing, you're actually aligning your attention and sharing it in that moment. And that's a really a fundamental uh, psychological um, uh, trick, really, that human beings have. So it's quite a fundamental thing uh, that I want to point out to you here. Other animals do not point in this way at all. Okay, There are ways in which animals can read each other's behaviour. They can, for example, uh, predict where other animals are going to go. They can see where other animals are looking, all this kind of thing. Uh, but there are very few animals, uh, well, there are none that actually point in the way that we do, and there are very few that can understand pointing. So recent research has shown that some species can understand pointing somewhat, dogs, for example, um, and in a way they've evolved to understand what humans uh, do and say, but most creatures uh, don't have this capacity to share attention in this open way. So it's characteristic of just everyday human behaviour. Your keys drop on the ground, I point to them, you see them, you pick them up. Okay, so I'm able to direct your attention and help you in some way or inform you of something, and this is... The, the, the argument that Herford puts forward and says that's the key thing that makes us get this topic comment structure out into the open. Kids point without having to be told how to point. They point all by themselves and they do so at the age of about nine months to a year and they do it as a precursor to learning language at all. In fact, as you all know, when you interact with um, you know, nine-month-olds, uh, to one-year-olds, pointing is one of their best ways to actually communicate with you, and it's a, it's a pretty good technique before they have language at all. Uh, and what we also know is that when a one-year-old child doesn't point, or a one-and-a-half-year-old child doesn't point, then there's something wrong. Uh, this, is, for example, is an indicator of, um, of, for example, certain autism spectrum problems. So um, this matter of pointing is something very fundamental to sort of human cognition that allows us to, uh, to, to talk. Now, when you, make, uh, when you sort of point things out and you have the capacity to characterise uh, those things and share that attention, what that allows you to do is to actually establish conventions. Okay, and there's been a kind of an argument in the philosophy of language that says this capacity is actually underlying all of our social institutions. It's when I point to something and I say, um, you know, okay, well, so this is going to represent, uh, you know, my house, and then I can tell you, you know, where John lives in relation to my house. When I do that, 
I'm using pointing and I'm getting you to actually attach a meaning to something. Okay, so we do that in the cultural domain. Uh, for example, we christen a child and we say, okay, this child is named John Smith. Then that actually becomes a fact. That now becomes a legal fact which is established through this sort of linguistic uh, type of practice. Or I could take a diagram like this and say, okay, well, uh, that's going to be me and this is a kinship diagram and so that over there is going to be my cousin. Okay? And when I do this, I'm using language to bestow meaning upon things and that is ultimately, it can be argued, the basis of actually how languages get invented in the first place. Uh, we give labels to things and as a community we agree that's what we're going to call that thing. Okay. So there's a kind of commitment that I want to draw your attention to here. If we say, okay, well, this diagram uh, is going to represent that, I can't just change halfway through what it's going to represent. We're going to agree to entertain uh, that this is, this is what it means for a certain period of time. Or particularly in the case of the child um, who's been christened, we're now, committed, we're now committed to referring to that child by that name, at least in a legal sense. So I want to draw your attention now back to the example that we looked at and say, well... Um, there are also these commitments in the way that we use language. Okay? So commitment to uh, a sort of a cooperative venture is what I'm drawing your attention to here. Okay? So when we agree that this is going to stand for that, we're committed to that. We're cooperating. We're playing the same game. Language usage is something like that. So here's Bud saying, I'll call you back in a little bit, and John saying, all right. Okay, so again, as I mentioned before, um, you know, Bud's not just doing, saying something, and he's also not just making an action. He's entering into a little pact, in a way, with John, right, through making these noises out of his mouth. Uh, and John is accepting that little pact, again, through making noises uh, out of his mouth, as it were. Um, but you see now what I'm trying to draw your attention to is the structure of sort of accountability that surrounds these bits of language usage. Now, one of the features of this type of interaction that I now want to kind of dive into is something I haven't mentioned yet, but which has been really crucial to the, the example that we saw and that we'll say a little bit more about, and that is the element of time. So we're in an interaction and we're using language, but there's this crucial element of time because it takes time to pronounce words, okay? So I've got to pronounce one word before the next and before the next and before the next, and you've got to wait until you've got my message before you can respond to it. So time is a critical factor here, and we can represent time in a diagram a little bit like this. So time's running along the bottom here, and we can say, all right, well, someone asks a question, um, and then the response comes after, and that's exactly what you saw here with our little question-response sequence here. You know Al Bippert? Yeah. Okay. Sounds like a pretty good little question-answer sequence there. Um, John, a bud keeps up his commitment to answering a question by providing the answer right there quite quickly. Now, what do I mean by keeping up his commitment to answer a question? Well, I'll show you a couple of other examples um, that draw our attention to what happens when you don't answer a question in the way that was required. So here's a little um, uh, snippet from a recording of a uh, therapy session with a few guys... Um, talking about, about their issues. I'm not going to play the clip, but I'll just I'll talk you through it. So you've got Roger saying, uh, it's always this image of who I am and what I want people to think I am. And Dan says, and somehow it's unrelated to what's going on at the moment? Question. Roger, yeah, but tell me, is everybody like that or am I just out of it? Okay, so there's his question. And then you get Ken saying, not to change the subject, but 
boom, Roger comes in, well, don't change the subject, answer me. Okay, so this should be pretty familiar to you, right? I mean, maybe it's slightly heated, it doesn't matter. The point is Roger is within his rights to insist that his question gets answered. Okay, so what you've got is, 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 a, is, is, a, is a speech act being issued through language and the people who are signed up for cooperating in this conversation are, are being held accountable for not actually playing by the rules, as it were. Here's another example. Uh, you've got Ray and San talking here and there's a woman called Tamarin and she's, uh, just off, um, she's just off to the side and Ray says to Tamarin, they're talking about something to do with what's going on with their mums or something, uh, does she call and conversate with you on your phone? She's asking Tamarin, right? One second silence. Sand says, no, that'd be wasting minutes. Okay, then a half a second and Ray says, I want Tamarin to answer the damn question, don't answer for her. So again, what we're seeing is people holding each other accountable for playing by these rules in terms of the, what rights and what duties they have um, in interaction. And in this case... There are two issues. One is Tamarin should be answering the question that was addressed to her and, um, uh, and uh, San here doesn't have the right to answer on her behalf. She may in some circumstances, but this is the kind of thing um, that I mean. So there's a real, um, you know, in normal interaction we don't have uh, very much turbulence, but sometimes we do, and when we have that kind of turbulence it tells us straight away there's a bunch of rights and duties being negotiated here. So um, those things are under the surface here in our little interaction between John and Bud. Um, and the one thing I want to draw your attention to here is that there's a pretty short gap. It's not very long. It's a 240 millisecond uh, gap there. Um, and this is characteristic of a completely smooth little sequence. Okay? This is exactly the kind of thing you should get when there isn't any issue about who is um, you know, within their rights to answer or not answer. So one thing that you can study if you want to get into you know, these issues is the timing between moves or, or conversational turns, if you like, for example, between questions and responses. So I've been involved in some studies of this. I won't go into um, great details of them. Uh, I'll draw your attention to a study by um, Felicia Roberts that sort of um, works off of some of that work. Uh, this is a psychologist who tried to get into that kind of question about what is people's sensitivity to timing in responding to questions in these kinds of ways. So what she did was she got uh, subjects into her lab and she made these little recordings um, and it was things like this. You would hear uh, someone's uh, A ask the question to B, right? So you hear, can I get a ride over there? And then um, what you get is um, a, there's a sort of a one second window at the end of the question and different people will hear different times at which the second person says sure. Okay, so you, some will hear that they respond with sure very quickly um, and going through that little one second window towards the end here. Well, it was a pretty clear result that when people hear someone answer with sure in this kind of first half of that little window, they don't really uh, seem to report any um, you know, reluctance to, to take up the offer or to you know, um, agree to what's the request, rather. Um, whereas if the response comes in here, then they report, yeah, it sounds like the person was hesitant. Because okay, so it seems like a pretty obvious little um, point, but what, the, what it means is that uh, we're subject, when we respond to people's questions, we're subject to that interpretation by others of hesitancy, of re reluctance to speak. So we better say something in that first half of a second, otherwise other people are going to read something into it. Okay, and so that's something that we're just as sensitive to as we are, you know, all of the other little aspects of language. 
so here we've got examples. This is from another phone call. A asks, what about coming here on the way? So it's kind of fishing to, be get, to, to get picked up. Silence. <laughs> well, doesn't that give you enough time? Well, no, I'm supervising here. So it's a very clear evidence that A is reading this silence as, a, as a something meaningful, right? This should be very familiar to all of us. Um, that, uh, you know, that, that this probably means um, the person doesn't want to say the, the thing, which is actually, no, I can't, sorry. So A is guessing, and it makes things a little bit more comfortable. Um, so uh, uh, what do we do when we can't deal with what the person has just said? Well, my, what, what follows from what I've been saying so far is that we better say something, Okay. Uh, deal with it. Um, and what's the only way to deal with it if you haven't um, heard what was said? Well, you say, huh? Dippert's there too. Huh? Dippert is there too. Okay, so this is sort of the, uh, the, the, the always possible tool uh, for dealing with um, a, a turn or some, what somebody said uh, that you don't know how to respond to. And the reason might be you didn't hear anything what they said. You weren't, you weren't looking. You, weren't, you didn't actually hear it. But there might be other reasons. Like, for example... Um, you know, what does he mean by Dippet's there too? Is he suggesting Dippet as a possible fourth guy or is he saying, you know, oh, you better, you better watch out because Dippet's around, we don't want him there. You know, what is he actually saying? We don't know. So there, there could be a problem um, with actually understanding what is being proposed here, what action is being done by this um, little bit of um, speech. All right. And so what we see just in terms of the timing here um, is again just focus on the, the these, this is just how many milliseconds each of these contributions take and between them here you see the gaps, the silences there. And those silences again are very short, they're just around a fifth of a second and that's exactly the window at which people expect a response to come so everything plays out pretty smoothly. So saying huh is, is actually you know, quite okay a fair bit of the time. Um, well, um, as Barbara mentioned earlier on, um, that's something that I and colleagues have studied um, and we've observed, of course, that in English you say, huh? Um, well, we've found that in many, many other languages uh, you say uh, pretty much exactly the same thing with slight variations. And here's how some of them say. Huh? Eh? Huh? Eh? Huh? These are examples from languages all around the world. This is just... Uh, a list of uh, 30 plus languages where we got some evidence that, uh, that there is this uh, heart word being produced um, in language after language after language. Um, so that in itself was a sort of a fun fact in a way to find that uh, you know, all languages have this word ha. Huh. But hopefully with the background I've been trying to give you, it's actually something pretty fundamental to how we deal with the problems of knowing or not knowing how to respond to people in the pressures um, within the framework of accountability of actually having a conversation with somebody. So together with colleagues in some quite big comparative projects, um, we've sort of delved into the, the other possible things that you can do instead of saying, huh? So here's a little map of the English possibilities. Um, uh, this is what's called a mosaic plot. So um, this plot represents all of the cases that we had in our sample um, of people you know, doing what we call other initiated repair. That's getting the other person to deal with a problem in what they just said. Um, and each of these um, fields here represents a proportion of those um, in terms of just the space they take up. So you see there's various possibilities in English. You can say, huh, what, sorry, if you're being slightly more polite. Or you can be more specific. You can say Mary or you can say who if you want to narrow in on something. And people do that too. So um, what we did is to compare across languages, are people being more specific? 
Here's um, a few more of these plots. There were more than just uh, four languages here, but here is um, English. Siwu, it's a West African language. Murimpata, um, this is work done by Joe Blythe, who's here this evening. Um, and Yelidne, a Papuan language, um, work by Steve Levinson. And what all of these plots show is that when you are going to uh, get someone to deal with a problem in what they've just said, you've got two really sort of vague uh, uh, options. One is the general, that's the hard type, which says, just fix what you said. Okay, I'm not giving you any uh, instructions as to what the problem was. Whereas specific type, which is common, Mary, who? It narrows in a little bit and says, it was, I got all the rest, I just didn't catch who, or, you know, etc. Or I caught the name, but I didn't, I don't know which, which one you meant. So we did a big comparative project. Um, in this case, this involved uh, 12 languages, and we, what we did was to, uh, these are the languages were spoken in these locations that you see with white dots. Um, so it's a big project that involved um, getting a couple of thousand cases of these types of uh, little problems in interaction um, from video recordings. So these are just some stills from the video recordings that we did. Um, and we pulled out a couple of thousand cases from all of those languages, uh, bundled them all together and looked for patterns to see um, how much consistency there was across the languages. So to put this in context, you know, in linguistics for, for, for many decades and uh, in fact centuries, people have been collecting data about languages to do with things like what's the word for X and Y and Z or how do you construct a sentence in that language. But this type of data is actually very hard to come by. Well, now, only just now, it's become much easier to record uh, and to study these kinds of things, but it still is a hell of a lot of work. So um, it's a pretty new field of um, comparative work in linguistics. So we found, um, firstly, that people are doing this kind of thing all the time, okay? And there's no real differences between languages in terms of the frequency. So the bottom line here is that once, within every minute and a half, someone will produce one of these things. They'll say, huh, or who, or what? Um, uh, in any conversation in any language, okay? Just this is, these are conversations around the home um, and there's always some kind of you know, interference or issue. What you see here is on this y-axis, this is the increasing probability of another one of these repair initiators like harm being used. Um, and on the x-axis, that is the, uh, the time in minutes since the last time one of them was used. So what this indicates is that once something is used, once someone says, huh, then very quickly the probability rises that someone else is going to say, huh, again, right? And it means that basically you never see five minutes going by without someone doing that. But we were interested to look at sort of this distinction between uh, producing a general, we just call it a G, and a specific, we call it an S form, um, a huh versus a who or something more specific, because we thought, well, maybe there are some differences between languages uh, here. So if you think about it, Huh? is something that you can always say, right? If you didn't get what was said. You can be sort of lazy and just say, huh, and you leave it up to the other person to figure out, was, was this a problem? Do I have to repeat everything? Do I have to fix the name? Um, so we went and we counted up the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the cases in which people were general or specific in doing this kind of repair. Um, and we looked at the circumstances in which um, those kinds of things happen. So one place in which we find people being very general and saying, huh, and not being specific is this kind of situation. Uh, so you have uh, one woman here, and this is, uh, this is some of my data from Laos. Uh, this woman here is, is asking this other woman on, the, on your left, um, will it take some time? 
Um, and that woman is actually looking into the next room and currently conversing with someone else. So she didn't catch anything that was said. So she says, huh? Okay, she turns around and says, huh? This would be a kind of typical case. And we found that when people were looking away, when they were busy with something else, when they were distracted, that's when they would say this general thing, huh? Whereas um, when they weren't distracted and so forth, this more specific forms uh, were used uh, 60% of the time. So what that showed was that there's something like we could call a universal specificity rule for repair. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that when people have some kind of problem with what was just said in that little teeny window, when they get to say, hang on, I'm not going to reply to this because I haven't got it, you've got to go back and fix it, they'd be more specific when they can. That's what they do. Okay. So what might that mean? Well, let's just look at this sort of structure of one of these. We had dippets there too. That was what... Uh, you know, one of the guys said. And then, um, so that was John, wasn't it? And then Bud says, huh? And so what I'm doing here is showing you that if we take huh and dip it is there too together, you see that huh takes a lot less time, okay? So basically this would be, you could think of this as the selfish option. Okay, so, you know, he's doing less work, huh? And now, you know, the other guy's got to say a bunch more. Well, the specific option is something like the other way around. Uh, so he does more work by giving more information in his request for clarification, and then you get a much simpler little answer. So the consequence of being more general or more specific, um, which we found this was the case across the languages, is that when you're more specific, you're doing a bit more work. Okay, so the conclusion for that is that, um, you know, that B is choosing a strategy for how to fix this little problem, um, and um, what we find is that B's choice is, tends to choose the most specific, which is most efficient, but it's also the one that minimises the cost uh, for the other person. So it's a highly cooperative sort of um, stance, and it's one that we find in all of the languages. It's the same principle being followed. It didn't have to be that way, right? We might have a culture in which people only ever say, huh. And in fact, that's been claimed, uh, but it's not empirically um, the case. All right. So um, I want to sort of move to, um, uh, into a sort of concluding phase while I have a couple more minutes uh, left. Um, I've sort of just touched on a few um, aspects of some of the work that I've been doing and what I want to do is just draw back out to the general questions that I started with um, by citing uh, Chomsky, again, who I mentioned earlier on, and this is a typical quote um, of his um, and a nicely articulated one from, um, from the late 60s, um, here where he asks, what contribution can the study of language make to our understanding of human nature? And this is the sort of classic way in which he's put this, this question and it's the one that I tried to start out with um, uh, this evening. So as I said, um, his answer has been you know, that there is uh, something in our nature that is a, a, something we're born with in the mind and it allows us to organise information in a special way and languages are kind of grounded in that and built out of that. Uh, but I think the alternative answer is to say that um, what it tells us about human nature is that human nature is essentially social. There's something fundamentally social about language and it's got everything to do with the kinds of issues um, that, I've been, um, that I've been raising in the, in, the, uh, in the examples that I've given you. Uh, so it's not just about thinking. In fact, it's more about doing than it is about thinking. Language is more about acting upon others um, and, um, 
and dealing with those actions in real time in a world in which we're accountable to each other for the things that we say um, or the things that we do through saying things. So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about the conversation machine. I'm talking about something that we bring in our species and uh, what I'm saying uh, and it's something that makes language possible and it ultimately makes language what it is. Uh, so it's a package of capacities that we have such as the one I list here. It relies on highly cooperative instincts, instincts and humans have a very special form of cooperation um, which is not paralleled in the animal world and it's the kind of uh, cooperation that really requires accountability, the possibility of sanctioning each other for not following the rules, all these kinds of familiar things that make us conform and continue to uh, fulfil our commitments to our little joint projects. And each of our conversations is a little joint project, just like the one we're engaged in right now. We're working with a complex reflexive code, namely language. Um, I mentioned at the beginning these are very complex codes and they're also codes that can be used to refer to themselves. And this entire domain of repair that I concentrated on um, is showing that. Um, It's uh, uh, crucial that language is not just a set of representing a set of informational relationships. It's sequential. Language is used in a sequence of interaction where each move is contingent on the move that came before it and is changing the horizon with respect to the possible next move. And all the kinds of things I discussed um, now are really consequences um, of that fact. So when you're in this relentlessly sequential kind of uh, communicative system, uh, you don't have much time to deal with responding to people, so you've got to come up with something. And so there's a real sensitivity to time that's driven by um, this kind of realm of social um, accountability. And that's the final uh, uh, point on this little list there, is this notion of joint commitment that we have um, that's quintessentially human and the accountability that keeps us on track with respect to that. So I've tried to demonstrate um, some of those elements and uh, in much other work that I've been doing, um, I, I can give you further examples um, if there were, you know, why don't you come to one of my courses and I'll give you, you know, 20, 26 lectures on this topic. Um, uh, but you can study a whole lot of things about language to begin to show these things. I talked about repair. We've also done studies of turn-taking and how that's done. We've been doing studies of how people request things of each other and how that gets managed. And the basic point that I want to put forward here is that we've had this incredibly rich history of research and theory in language, um, and it's done fantastic work in terms of concentrating on what grammar is like and how information is organised in grammars. Um, But the real action uh, in subsequent years, I think, is going to be in looking at language in the wild in a very serious way in terms of trying to uh, use that type of data to answer the fundamental questions um, of linguistics, namely... What is language? Uh, why do we have it? How do we, how do we learn it? And how can we make the best of it? So thank you very much for your attention. Can I get a few questions? Absolutely. Okay, well, thank you.
thank, thank you to Nick for a, a wonderful lecture. I must say, often what one likes in a lecture is the way in which something that's very complex is made very simple. But Nick seems to me to have done something the other way around, which is to show the completely extraordinary complexity that underlines the simple conversation and to show through that kind of example all the sort of, the, the sort of basic issues that he wants to discuss in terms of what language is, language is a, as a particularly human capacity and the importance particularly of, um, of sociality and communication within language. So I think it was a kind of fabulous demonstration. And we've got time now for a few questions if people want to ask any or comments. Hi there. I was just wondering if there has been much research into the use of the word um, like ha. Huh. <laughs> there has. There has been some research on um, like ha. Huh. Um, it is, you know, it's an interesting one because there's the, the, there, there are alternatives. There's um and there's ah. And there's a whole issue about, you know, what's the difference between arm and R, and I can direct you to, there's a paper in one of the most important uh, psychology journals called Cognition, which compares arm and R, and uh, concludes that they basically do the same thing, which is that they, um, and th- <laughs> yeah. that, that they signal to you um, that there's a problem, okay, in my production of language. And so that seems sort of, uh, you know, trivial in a way, but it's a very good case of exactly what I've been talking about. And one of the arguments about um and ah is that they are accounting for why there's a delay in my own speech. Okay, so what they do, I mean, I can have a problem formulating what I want to say and I can just keep it to myself. But if I don't do anything to display what the problem is, you're going to read stuff into it just in the same way that I mentioned before. If my delay in responding to you can, you know, can be interpreted in a certain way. So one analysis which I like of um and ah is that it's a way of accounting for a delay. Yeah. Yeah. One of the besetting problems of contemporary conversation is people who seem to disregard the concept of turn-taking and rather <laughs> go on and on and on and a rhythm doesn't really develop. Now, it seemed to me that towards the very end, you, you were suggesting that turn-taking was something that's built into the human brain as an expectation. Could you just say a few more words about that? Well, I wouldn't say that it was um, built into the human brain. In, in, well, it depends quite what you mean by that. But I think that turn-taking is something that you can think of as emergent. Uh, you know, so turn-taking is this system whereby if we're in a dialogue, you know, one person's speaking for a bit and someone else should speak next and then the other person can speak. And there's quite a, a, a lot of research on how this is actually um, structured. And I think that how I would analyse it would, would not, not be to say that there's something programmed in the brain for you to understand turn-taking, but rather t- the, the pattern of turn-taking emerges from the kinds of things that I've been talking about here. So key things would be uh, you know, there is a set of relevance relations between every contribution to a discourse. So we don't specify in advance what we're going to say when we have a conversation most of the time, right? So what we need to be able to do is to hear what the other person said in order to, you know, be able to produce a relevant response to it. Well, how do we judge the relevance of responses? Well, the, the moves have to be adjacent to each other. The further apart they go, the less connected they become, so you shouldn't leave huge gaps but you shouldn't be overlapping too much because then you won't understand what the other person's saying. You're too busy saying something yourself. So there's a sort of an, an emergent 
latching um, of one turn to the next. Now, perhaps the issue you're talking about is someone dominating the floor and not letting someone else kind of get a word in. Um, well, sometimes you have um, a institutional license to do that, like me right now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, of course, if you do that too much in your personal life, then that creates um, real, real problems. I think that's something you can analyse. You can look at the kinds of things that people do in order to avoid letting other people take up their turn. So there was research on Margaret Thatcher um, back in the day. This is a different sort of problem, but she used to get interrupted in interviews quite a lot. Uh, this is work by Ann Cutler, who we were talking about earlier. Um, uh, and she noticed that there was a certain pattern in her intonation which caused other people to think she was done and they would start, but actually she wasn't. So there, there are some uh, specifiable issues with things like how people, you know, what their intonation is and the way, the way in which they might speed up at the end of a turn in order to get into the next turn. So those problems can be studied and solved. Okay, there was, so there's a question up there and then one here, and I think there was one on there. Okay. Yep. I can't hear it. I just. In terms of, Sorry. In terms of the uh, diagram you had, which said humans were the only species to develop language, and I think you suggested that might be just a byproduct of something. Mm. Do you think it's a byproduct? If it's not a byproduct, why are humans the only one to come up with this good trick? Is it really hard to come up with? And if so, what does that say about, for example, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Well, I mean, the, what it, how it relates to the search for extra, ex, extraterrestrial intelligence is, I mean, I don't think there's any um, necessary connection to that. I mean, the, you know, extraterrestrial intelligence, if you, have, if you want to talk about intelligence, you have to measure it in a certain way, and there's all sorts of intelligence that's not linguistic, right? So you'd be talking about cognition generally, which generally, usually is measured by, you know, the capacity to... Uh, act flexibly in response to your environment. So, you know, if you, you know, life forms of, with nervous systems are usually pretty good at responding flexibly to their environments, and humans are sort of the best at it, right? Um, and some people have said, well, you know, language is the reason uh, for that. Um, so, I mean, what I tried to uh, argue uh, just now was that really those features that I, that I suggested, the, the, the very particular features of cooperation particular features of the sequence of the ways in which we interact are the conditions in which language can emerge, right? And then when it does emerge, it historically evolves in all of these different communities. So that gives rise to the thousands of languages we have um, around the world. Uh, the point is that other species can't get that process started, or this is the argument, uh, because they don't have that particular cocktail of, um, of, of sort of you know, psychological capacities that I'm referring to as the conversation machine. Okay, thank you. We've got three more questions. Is it, is it, possible, is it possible that uh, particularly obsessive, obsessive, obsessive parents, like I had a pair of teachers, they, they weren't too bad, but they wouldn't <laughs> like you saying, huh, and these sort of things. You know, they'd say that's American speak or Negro speak or some damn thing or other. But um, you could be talked out of the uh, easygoing communication with these brief singles. You could, you could be handicapped a bit if you, if you followed all this. And the other question was just, what did you mean by repair? I didn't pick up that up. Yeah. 
Uh, well, so repair was sort of a, that's a sort of technical term for the practices that, that I was describing. So if I say, huh, that's a, that's a way of what we call initiating repair. It's a way of getting the other person to uh, repeat what they said or fix what they said. So that's a sort of technical cover term for, for, for repair. I mean, in relation to, you know, whether huh is uh, polite or not polite, um, uh, not sure I quite got the question, but... Uh, Right, right. Well, they might they, they might stop you saying a lot of things. They might stop you saying I aren't, and they might stop you saying him and me. Um, there's a lot of things that they'll stop you doing, and that's typical of language. We try to you know um, direct people to say to, we, we evaluate it, and we have ideology about language. Um, so people can say they don't say harm, or they shouldn't say harm, but they say it all the time. And they have alternatives, they have sorry, pardon me, and all of that, but these things are context-specific. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'd like you to comment, if you could, about a girl who was um, abandoned and grew up in, uh, I think it was the Malaysian jungles, and uh, when she was finally discovered and emerged, she communicated by growling and um, all sorts of animal sounds. So how does that fit in with the acquisition of language? Uh, in terms of people having to, to be exposed to it. Right, yeah, I think there's two issues. I mean, one is uh, that kids learn language with, with uh, incredible imitation. They imitate and imitate and imitate. They just do exactly, say exactly, you know, before they even know what's being said, they're saying the same things as, you know, what other people are saying around them. So if you remove a child from a social setting, they just, they don't have something to imitate. Obviously, the child's not going to learn any language, um, if they don't have a language to kind of copy. So, you, you know, when you say they're making animal sounds, maybe they're just vocalising in any way that they, they can. They're not, they're not imitating sort of anything in particular. But the second thing is that without social interaction, uh, without people pointing things out to them, sharing attention with them, entering into joint projects with them of the kind that I mentioned, this actually has a really a serious impact on people's cognition. Uh, so, you know, kids who are abandoned or don't have proper social interaction have r- serious developmental uh, issues, and that can affect their acquisition of language as well. So we find it, for example, in um, uh, deaf children who aren't surrounded by people who speak a fully developed um, sign language. So these are not people in the jungle, but they're people who are not getting uh, access to a fully developed language until, for example, at the age of six they go to a deaf school. Well, that's very late to acquire a real, richly developed language and there's, there's real you know, cognitive measures of, of delayed uh, development in, associated with that. Yeah. Um, have you done any work on text conversations? <laughs> oh, texts? Yes. Uh, you mean like texting on the yes. phone? Uh, no, no, I, I haven't done any myself. I think there's quite a lot of uh, uh, people working on this. Um, uh, you know, it's an interesting one um, because it has uh, different properties uh, due to the medium. Um, but I think that you know, you'd, there'd be certain predictions and there'd be certain commonalities. I mean, the medium uh, is such that you have the same sequentiality, okay, but you've got very different temporal things. So you can be, you know, as you know, you can be answering someone and they've already presumed you were not answering or, you know, you were making tea or something and they interpreted your delay um, as being, you know, a, a problem. So I, I would predict, I mean, I don't know the work myself, but definitely there's work going on and I would say that uh, there'd be some clear commonalities and some clear differences. Yeah. Um, 
the, um, you talked about repairing the, the word huh. When we listen to people, often we make supportive noises, like uh-huh. mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. keep going, keep going. Right. Um, and then when we're on the phone and we can't see that, or, or, and often sometimes instead of going uh huh, uh huh, we'll use nodding. Right. Right, and when obviously when we're on the phone, I've got to make that obviously he nods a lot because he never says, uh-huh, uh-huh, and you've got no idea whether he's still there. Um, my question is, is in, like, do you look at that notion of supportive listening and with the idea of the human being being a social creature, are there more cultures that display more supportive listening right. and is there a link between that and a more harmonious society as opposed to more warlike societies? Well, I'm not sure about the link. I mean, it's a really interesting possibility that there might be such a link. Um, there's definitely evidence that cultures differ in terms of how much of this supportive feedback they give. Japanese society is famous for their practices, what's known as aizuchi, which is very appears uh, to you know, perhaps the Anglo sensibility to be excessive um, you know, production of these aha-type related things. We know that cultures differ in terms of sort of how much they do this, but we've never heard of any culture where there is no sort of, you know, feedback of that kind. Um, It's really interestingly related to the ha stuff, okay? Uh, So one of the famous uh, conversation analysts, Manny Shegloff, um, did an analysis of uh aha. studied uh uh-huh and when do people say it in in narratives for example you're saying something and I say uh uh-huh uh-huh in the way you said his argument was that by saying that you're saying you know I heard what you said uh, but I'm not going to say anything now and I'm not going to initiate repair which is to say I'm not going to say huh I didn't have any problem with what you just said yet so his point, his argument was it's actually closely related to, to these hard type things because it's passing on the opportunity to take up the floor and therefore giving you permission to keep going. So I think it's also related to this notion of being accountable for paying attention, accountable for doing your part in the um, social interaction. Thanks. Okay, well, thank you. We're not going to have any more questions because Meredith cannot keep going up and down the stairs. (laughs) Um, I would like to thank Meredith and Sydney Ideas for for organising this. Um, Also, just to tell you that the next Sydney Ideas lecture, the next Insight lecture, will be on the 16th of June, and it will be Professor Ishu Lu, the head of the School of Languages and Cultures, talking about the Chinese enigma, China through European eyes, from 1750 to 1900. And now I'd just like to thank Nick again, both for a fabulous lecture and for wonderful answers to very good questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Lovely.